In this episode, I am once again joined by Dr. Alexander Arguelles, linguist, world-renowned polyglot, and scholar of comparative religion. Dr. Arguelles discusses the spiritual dimension of language, recounts his own experiences of self-transcendence, and comments on the power of reading sacred works in their original languages. Dr. Arguelles reflects on his personal explorations in meditation, pranayama, and prayer, and shares his own method to silence the monkey mind with a combination of breath control and linguistic meditation. Dr. Arguelles also discusses how to include work and study as a part of spiritual practice, details the lifestyle habits required to nourish the life of the mind, and warns against the deleterious effects of the convenience traps found in modern life. So without further ado, Dr. Alexander Arguelles. Professor Alexander Arguelles, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me again a third time. I'm honored that uh, people have interest in hearing this. Well, yes, indeed. In the last two episodes, very well received, indeed. And there's been quite a bit of demand for this third installment. And in those last episodes, we covered, among other things, the story of your life. Remarkable story. The last episode was called The Wandering Polyglot. And I think that sums up aspects of your life anyway. You've gone from country to country and immersing yourself in different languages, taking on teaching positions and uh, having various adventures. And these two episodes, I think, very fascinating indeed. And today we resolved to dive directly into something that we did touch on in the other episodes, your techniques of, of language learning, but also something that seems important to you, which is the spiritual, could we say, implications of language learning per se. So I wanted to begin with a quote that I ended with in the last episode, and perhaps we can go from there. You said that the key to learning a new language is unhooking that inner stream from the mother language and hooking it into the new language. More than discipline or concentration tasks or meditation or pranayama or prayer, I found the procedure of thinking in a foreign language is superior to all the others in switching off the monkey mind and thus controlling the mind. I wonder if you might unpack that statement for us, please. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I guess I have a relatively, relatively unique, unusual uh, approach to languages, I don't see them as, as functional tools for communication, which is, I think, the, the only reason why most people could conceive of, of learning a language and the way they would uh, try to look at them. And phenomenologically, objectively, you, you, that's, that, that does fit. That, that, that is one function that languages do. They're, they're tools that enable people to communicate. But I really feel that languages are our, uh, we are, uh, Languages are, in, in a philosophical sense, are if we write any language like uh, English or Sanskrit or Tibetan, it's going to be a language with a little l, small l, it's a language. And they're all, in a very platonic sense, reflections of language with a capital L, which is somehow the structure of our brains, particularly of our thought system and our and our perceptual system, our essence, the way that we are, the way we think, the way that we perceive, the way that we feel our place in the universe um, is all done through the medium of language with a capital L. Uh, and we, most of us, particularly those of us who were born monolingual, um, are sort of given one little vista in, into this. But if you think of all the languages with a little L, 
are like reflections or projections or emanations of the, the large L language um, that is the, the sort of the original language uh, in our brains, then the degree to which we have um, other perspectives into it are going to help us get a better picture of it, a better, deeper understanding of it. Um, and so, yes, I have um, always felt that um, learning languages is uh, first and foremost, it is a, it's, it's a mind expanding spiritual task. It's, it's what we do with our entity that helps us, you know, sort of conceive the world in a, in a, larger deeper richer perspective by understanding the way i have it's, it's, uh, language use is automatic it's just like breathing you know and you as a yoga teacher you know that you know that's one of the main reason, re ways you, you teach people to meditate is by concentrating and focusing on the breath and i think that most people are not language there's some way most people are not breath conscious they are not language conscious we just speak and it comes out automatically and you use it and the same way that by focusing on your breath, you can learn to meditate and, and still the mind, still that monkey mind and focus and concentrate and sort of clarify, clear your head. Um, I think that by becoming language conscious, which is a similar process of, of somehow focusing on the essence of what language is doing, not letting it just be an automatic unconscious process, but making it a conscious process uh, is a way of, of clarifying and focusing the mind as well. Particularly when you say, well, you know, Gosh, we just happen to be born native English speakers, and I guess we're kind of lucky. English is a huge, major world language now, and that you know, unfortunately, makes it hard for us to learn other languages because everybody wants to learn English. But uh, beyond that, it's you know, it's, it gives us a large community of people to communicate with. But we didn't choose this; we just got lucky. If this is a good luck thing, you know, and the the fact is that the English language or any language that you're using is sort of like it 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 controls you. It you know, it, it determines the way that you. Um, articulate things and, 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 you know, and, and the way that you think, and you didn't choose it. And so if you can sort of say, well, I spent all of my day thinking all of my day, but that monkey mind is always chattering away in this language. And I didn't put that language there. And I want to have the experience of taking some control of this. And so if I can choose another language that maybe somebody else happened to be born into, but I didn't, I'm choosing this language. I'm choosing to program my mind and have it think and function in this other language. That's an act of discipline. That's an act of, of will uh, that um, enables you to, again, sort of kind of take control of your mind rather than just function in a way that you happen to be born into. And when you do that, when you actually successfully do that, then you experience the steps that I was describing that in that quote that you had of, of um, <clears throat> experiencing, particularly if you have tried other things like meditation and, and other forms of prayer and, and things like this, of saying, how can I really focus my mind, uncouple my mind? And I've always just found that, um, you know, we have, we've got this constant um, fear in our heads, I think, when we're, particularly when we're starting to learn a language, you know, I'm not able to say this, I don't know how to do this, I, I don't, you know, I'm unable to, I don't know that word. So we've got this impulse to sort of, if we try to think in a language, to panic and say, I can't do it, or to to revert, revert to translating and putting in other words that you have. Um, and I've just always found over the years in developing Honda's technique where you don't do that. You just consciously turn off the panic impulse and you consciously turn off the translation impulse. And particularly if you are working with languages where you are using a technique that 
I call shadowing, where you listen and repeat simultaneously. So um, you will have some sounds, you will have some phrases, you will have some sentences going through your head. And in a way that's very, very similar to meditation, what I've always found, if you train yourself from the get-go to do, is when you've been doing a session like that, a shadowing session, if you stop, and rather than stopping and, and just going immediately something else, you make a conscious will, you make the intention, I'm going to stay and keep hearing these sounds. And I'm going to try to think and understand these sounds. And I'm not going to panic and I'm not going to translate. And I may couple it with, with pranayama, I may couple it with holding my breath and uh, just trying to stay 15, 20 minutes, just completely thinking and, and being in that language. And then as you develop and grow in the language and you are able to have to really have more vocabulary and have longer and longer sentences that you can think, um, you will be thinking in that language much more automatically uh, than uh, than than most people tend to to do. I think uh, with with other methods, and this is just a way of getting yourself when you're doing that of feeling like, well, wow, I'm controlling the process of the way my mind is functioning and perceiving things. I'm not being controlled by it. I'm controlling it, and. Precisely because I'm, you know, I'm, I have limited vocabulary and limited ability to express myself. I can't, my monkey mind can't jump all around. It can't go everywhere, but I'm, I'm, I'm coupling it to it. I'm decoupling, you know, that, that random thought process. And I'm putting myself using a new system, a system of words, a system of vocabulary, a system of grammar. I'm putting myself in using that. Uh, and that just is um, very powerful for, um, uh, like I said, just sort of making me feel totally focused. Uh, I would have to say that, you know, I have tried um, forms of meditation. I've tried forms of prayer. And, you know, I've, as you know, I mean, everything can be done better with practice and things like this, but I can compare those to intensive study sessions and intensive study sessions are to me um, more, they're deeper, richer spiritual experience than those, you know, attempted, you know, lengthy, lengthy meditation or prayer sessions uh, that they are for me. So that's, that's what I meant. That's very interesting. Indeed, I would like to return to that technique in a moment. But something you said, I must ask about deeper, richer spiritual experience. Now, I'm very curious what you what you mean by that? Well, you know, as as again, the, the feeling that we have as contingent creatures, as animals in this world running around who didn't choose to be here and didn't, you know, we're just, we find ourselves and we're, we're making the best of a situation that we find ourselves in and, and we're trying to understand it. And we're looking at, you know, the fact that through the millennia, Another great thing, really, I can't uncouple it also. I mean, languages are, for me, have always been about reading literature, about reading great books, about reading philosophical and, and religious texts, you know, things that have been well-written and are worth reading. So that's always been a goal of doing it. So I'm, I'm not just sort of putting it out there as a purely linguistic experience. I'm always coupling it and getting it into that. It's going to lead into that. So um, knowing that I'm getting towards that goal, knowing that I'm getting to the point of saying, well, I can not only just have my thoughts be here, but I can channel my thoughts through like books of religion and philosophy that have been written in this language is going to really push the direction in which I'm channeling. Um, but yeah, I would just say that the, the um, experiences that I've had of 
of of meditation, which again, I'm, I'm certainly no master at or anything like that, you know, and I'm, I'm sure many of your other listeners stuff can relate, you know, it's a, it's a hard process, you get, you know, bored, you're just sitting there, you know, you, your mind is still wandering, you have to be constantly fight and you follow the instructions to bring your mind back without judgment and do that. But ultimately, you know, I just, you know, I can, if I'm trying to do that, Ultimately, I would honestly say I get I get bored after a while. I have to stop. I can't do that for you know for four hours. I've seen you sometimes sit there do it for four. Hours. I can't do that. Um, when I've you know I've I've tried to find going particularly in you know uh, just uh, you know a, a, you know the, the whole culture that I come from is you know. Christian here, Christian there, various forms. So I've been to different types of churches. And, you know, and I'm when I'm with people and they're trying to pray and stuff like this, I always the back of my mind is thinking, is this really real? Is this, you know, what is this? Is this, you know, I just I don't, I can't get, you know, wrapped into that. Um, I've explored, you know, and from throughout my life, you know, I've been to 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 Buddhist temples and other places. I mean, I've I've tried lots of different things, um, and yet truly the only thing that when I've been saying, well, what, what can I sort of like go into almost like a trance like state um, is the closest thing that I've found is when I'm really getting involved in studying hard reading, not, not just studying grammars, but like reading in a foreign language that I've learned how to read hard into. So that that's what I meant is that you're somehow in touch with um, through the right kind of languages like Latin and Sanskrit in particular, you're getting in touch with um, such rich vocabulary for expressing concepts, philosophical, spiritual concepts, and you are learning how to think of them and, and use them and getting richer in them. And when you do that, uh, that's where I can sort of get engrossed and truly feel myself sort of on another plane, another channel, another sort of level uh, that, as I said, I just, I can't, I've never been able to get through any kind of prayer or meditation. So uh, to me, the fact that I'm getting close to spiritual ideas through the texts uh, and that I'm taking charge of the functionings of my mind and that I'm reprogramming myself and what I'm choosing to do rather than what I've been sort of fated or destined to do. Um, all of that just makes me feel like, well, here, like I said, and I, I am connecting with that capital L. I'm connecting with the thing, the archetype behind all the ways that human beings use languages. And that's sort of getting closer to a higher entity. Um, and, you know, I've, I love mythology, you know, I'm fascinated by religion, but, you know, I've always, you know, just that when you get right down to it, talking about higher entities, what can I really conceptualize them? I can really conceptualize capital L. So. And is there a sense of relationship there with capital L as one might have with an entity or an individual? Um, is there, is there that sense? How personified, uh, has your experience of language capital L been? I wouldn't say it's personified. No, I wouldn't say it's personified. And I wouldn't say it's been like a personal relationship or anything like that. But it's more of a realization of how vast things can be, are, you know, in, in, in the ultimate scheme of things, and how narrow and little we are in, in 
our daily lives. Uh, and so in particular, sort of using that with just, you know, again, if, if here in America, I'm just using English, if all I did was use English, you know, in terms of having all of my vocabulary and all of the words that I use to describe things and all of the things just be sort of given to me and used in this one way and never knowing that there are other terms there are other ideas there are other concepts that just aren't expressed in english that could be maybe historically were at one point forgotten or you know could be borrowed but are not and then you know and then you can meet them in, in latin and in sanskrit and in other languages like that uh, and so it's more of a more of a realization of yeah of, of just perspective i would say more than than yeah, any sort of personification now. Yeah, is that recontextualizing, it sounds like you're describing of one's sense of oneself in relationship to the, that vastness. Another dimension of mystical experience or spiritual experience or this sort of this sort of aspect that we're discussing here is one of self-transcendence. Is that has that ever been an aspect of what you're describing for you? Have there oh, ever yeah. been elements of self-transcendence? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that, that's a good way of phrasing it. You know, you uh, transcend the self, uh, and when you again, when you push down that panicky, I can't do it feeling that I don't know it, the panicky, I don't know the vocabulary feeling, and you say, okay, I'm going to just be with what I can. I'm going to hear it. I've given myself. Maybe I just started out. I've got the sounds, and then ultimately I'll come and I'll get more vo more vocabulary. But um, basically, it's it's kind of a path of deliberately choosing the, you know, the difficult way, the hard path. You know, it's, it's just no need to do it. I mean, for native English speakers, we could just stay in English. There's absolutely no need, practical, functional, real need to, to learn language most of the time. But if you choose to do it, it's, you know, it's a path and it's a discipline and it's, it's a technique. And uh, when you do that, um, you're going to find that, yeah, um, no matter how, well, you learn the best foreign languages that you learn. I guess maybe you could say somebody could just utterly transplant, to, you know, and go and totally immigrate and never use their native language again. That might be an exception. But in most cases, you know, you just know I'm never going to do this as well as I can already do it in this new language, but I'm going to do it as best I can. So I'm going to transcend myself. I'm going to, you know, go beyond myself. I'm going to challenge myself to do something um, that I can try and approximate and you know, bring to the sort of the level at which I can sort of have thoughts go through my mind in my native language, but I'm going to do it. Uh, like I said, I, I just find that, um, that, that the, the monkey mind um, is actually that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a way of transcending myself. I can put it. I mean, I, I, in a way, I don't really have the monkey mind to the degree in other languages that I have it in English. So uh, in some language, and I think it's that's because you consciously, deliberately go through the process of learning the languages. So um, there's a stage when you can't have monkey mind because you don't have the the, um, the the ability to have it. You, you can't you can't wander because you can't think. <laughs> so when you're a beginner in a foreign language, you, you you can't have a monkey mind. And if you train yourself by doing the kind of exercise that I do and you work up to it, then you say, well, you know, I trained myself not to have a monkey mind. I think that we developed the monkey mind because you know, it's, it's a natural thing to, to do uh, when you're, you know, totally, you know, engaged and, and you, you can't differentiate between 
your the way that you articulate, the way that you think, and that actual process that can be described. Here's the vocabulary and here's the grammar. You can't distinguish that when you're a native monolingual speaker or when you're just using your mother language. But when you're doing with this a foreign language, um, I just uh, have find that that's there. So if, if nothing else, I would I would put that out. I mean, uh, at this stage of my life, I think I can say that I'm, you know, I couldn't necessarily pass for a a native speaker, but there are a number of languages that I could go and live and function perfectly well in and, and be there all day. And I can think in them all the time. Uh, and yet I don't have, I don't have my mind wandering. Maybe now that you point that out, maybe one reason I enjoy thinking in foreign languages is because my mind isn't wandering. Um, but that is something I just took a habit, like when I did my postdoc in Germany. So I stayed thinking, made myself think in German, then I just kept doing it. But, uh, and I still do think in German a great deal of the time, but I don't think my mind wanders very much in German or in, in other languages the way it does in, in English. It's very interesting. I think what you're describing could be said to line up with various stages of meditation and steps in different meditation systems and traditions, particularly this fixing some sort of condition of focus and then working through what arises as a consequence of that panic, as you say, um, the bewilderment of, of, of the gaps of, in vocabulary and grammar, etc., especially in the earlier stages and so on, and the temptation to rush back to one's familiar patterns and so on. <laughs> We're working through that reactivity and cultivating that focus and absorption, perhaps even at, perhaps at times. Um, it's very interesting indeed. And that leading to insight or recontextualization of oneself or of, of broader themes, such as language with a capital L and so on, and concept and vocabulary and the, the limitations of those things. Um, that's interesting indeed. I wonder if you might recall a particular instance. I, I, you mentioned my, my own meditation practice. I, I have two or three uh, meditation moments that I, I think of fondly, you know, um, perhaps more than that. I wonder, do you recall any particular example of this? Perhaps reading a sacred text or, or working with one, of your, with one of your languages in that sense. Uh, do you have any uh, particular fond memories or representative anecdotes of this process that stand out to you? Well, there was one time when I must have been a junior in college, because I'm thinking of the dormitory where I was, the dormitory where I was, uh, and I was studying Sanskrit. I was just, um, I think, not the way that we're doing it now, uh, you know, with the Coulson's book, but with uh, the Landman Reader which just plunges you into it and you have to use Whitney's grammar to go and try to, you know, find out what's going on and you have to become totally engrossed and if you want to have anything. And so I was doing that. I was doing my homework, sitting at my desk in my dorm room. And at some point I, I just like, it seemed like it was far away. Um, but then I heard it come um, louder and louder and closer and closer. And I realized that somebody was knocking on my door. Um, and I went and opened the door. It was my friend, Mark. And he was like, what are you doing? You know? And, and I said, that, and he was like, been knocking on the, I knew you were in there. So I kept knocking, but I, you know, I, I've been knocking for like, you know, minutes now. And, and, you know, what are you doing? And he, and he said, you look like you're 
dazed or you know or or, or in a different mo mode or something so uh just in that in the sheer studying mode of that uh is something that i can yeah i remember that specific time in, in my junior year of college um i can remember uh other another time when i went to um saint petersburg uh, for to to after I taught myself a good deal of of Russian, I realized, man, this is a really hard, different, total language. I need to go there and and do a, an immersion stay. So I was living with the family and taking private lessons for like six hours a day, and and you know this is the dead of winter there for a month, and I had this um, tour guide, this cultural tour guide, who. Um, she was not a language teacher. So I sent all day with a language teacher and then with like normal people who were somehow used to having foreigners come and stay in their home. And so you kind of talk to them. It was kind of always felt awkward. Like, okay, here I am. I'm talking the foreign languages with the teacher. Okay. I'm structured with the teacher, but the tour guide <clears throat> was just showing me around her city, showing me to take the museum, showing me and stuff like this and just talk, 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 talking. And I found that much more interesting and pleasurable. And so I actually hired her beyond what the 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 uh the language school provided I, I hired her to actually go out and spend more time going on cultural tours with her and just somehow um realizing if even realizing even then like somehow i'm on a way to um to to uh to communicating because i'm talking about it rich important things with somebody who's just like interested in communicating not judging or anything about the the language or whatnot um so that was you know very that was very um interesting that i could do that it was just like it was there was a freedom to communicate that was somehow there was an unhooking and unchaining of of that that i had like with the normal regular people the family that i was staying with the shopkeepers the people i bumped into and that was different from being with the, the professional teacher um and then uh it's one thing that she did she 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 took me to dinner one night introduced me to some um russian obviously Russian, <laughs> some, some, I forget who was a professor to some sort of, you know, very, very, very intellectual guy, but, you know, didn't have a word of English and, you know, and just had this really deep conversation that I felt like I understood um, that I, you know, I, when I reflected, I said, wow, how can I have had that level of conversation? But it just seemed like thrown into the context, you, you can do that. Um, when I was uh, came back where, you know, when I found myself uh, at, at that new college in, in San Francisco teaching after the Lebanon experience. Um, and they asked me, I've been building the great books programs and they were interested in having me to like teach Far Eastern consciousness. They wanted to call it great books of the East Far Eastern consciousness. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I have the text and whatnot, but um, I, I ought to uh, get, you know, I've been focusing on Arabic. I had to sort of freshen up on my, Chinese characters. And, and so I went to the, um, the Asian art museum in San Francisco and I went up to this stone engraved carved stone uh, that had characters on it that in case people don't know who are listening, Chinese characters, classical Chinese characters are things that you need to constantly use and practice. Otherwise you kind of freak, 
you forget them. They're not like an alphabetic writing system where it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You learn it and you, you'll have it forever. Um, so when I was in Korea at a certain point, I did focus very, very hard on, on learning on Chinese characters because they're the basis for the etymology of, of the language. Um, and so at a certain stage, I probably knew a couple of thousand Chinese characters pretty well, so I could I could read them. But at this stage, I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten them all. Um, but when I looked at that stone, I was seeing things that I'd forgotten. I wasn't, I was not reading it. I wasn't, I couldn't read. It. I didn't understand what it said, but I it was like, I looked at the characters and I had the experience of reading it. And I had the experience, well, I've forgotten you. I've forgotten you. I've forgotten you. I've forgotten you. But somehow it was a different experience from looking at just a blank wall or a bunch of figures that I'd never learned or seen. So that was kind of interesting uh, to have, to have that, um, have that happen. Um, what else? Then there's um, here in Minnesota, uh, when I was plugged into the Finnish language immersion camp for two weeks, pretending to be a, a, a camper so I could figure out how it worked, but taking more advantage than a, than a kid could really do. And, you know, just prepping myself and reading grammars on my own and just getting sort of real private attention from some of the teachers. Um, there was one guy that... Um, he was totally, totally, totally into it. And he's just like, um, he was very interested in things religious and philosophical as well. And so I uh, would just sort of prepare conversations um, with him in this totally different language sort of, and just use the technique of, you know, sort of saying some prepared sentence that I'm hearing what he said, knowing it in context, saying back what he said, asking him to clarify. And so actually getting to have a conversation um, on a meaningful level when I was at a very, very limited actual level of functionality, but just having, having it be those ways. So yeah, those are a couple. Very interesting indeed. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that part of your motivation and reward, it seems also from language learning and language study is to read great texts, great books of various types, philosophical, religious, and literature, etc. In the language in which is in which you uh, you study, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you might. You've mentioned Latin, you've mentioned Sanskrit, of course, vast amounts of wonderful material in those languages. I wonder if you might list perhaps a few of the texts that you have fond memories of having read in this sort of a way. It's not just Latin and Sanskrit. I just mentioned because, like, I know you're doing these. I know so these are things that I know that you can relate to. But I have found that. Um, I've always said this, that I think that the, the vocabulary of the world's languages, if you think of it as, as they come from certain sources or certain streams, if you think of what are the etymological wells, the etymological rivers or streams, I think there's classical Chinese, I think there's Sanskrit, I think there's Arabic, I think there's Latin and Greek. And so there's, there's a handful of languages that um, if you learn these languages, you have the vocabulary in hand that are in most other languages. So, you know, if you learn Arabic, you've got the vocabulary basically of Swahili and Urdu and maybe even Indonesian, you know, you have just uh, a base in that. So reading these languages in particular, like the ones that are the source languages, um, they're all really hard languages, actually, you know, it takes, it takes a, a long time to um, get, uh, get, get into them. But, um, when you read these languages in particular, yes, that, that can be quite rewarding. Um, 
sticking with them. I don't know, like with, with Latin, um, well, currently in the, in the group that we have, the conversational Latin, that they're all interested. I'm surpri they're surprisingly interested. I thought they might find it getting tedious, but we're looking at Thomas Aquinas' De Veritate, On Truth by Thomas Aquinas. And it's really, really intense. It's really, I mean, it's it's not a question of, under, you can read the sentence and you understand all the words, but God, what does he mean? You know, what is the accident and the essence and stuff like this, but just talking that out with that group of three or four people who are there and well wait a minute how can i read this sentence how can i put the stress of the intonation uh, on it such that it makes more sense it's very opaque if you if you read it in a monotone if you just if you just eyeball it if you don't talk it out if you don't think about it it's hopeless on trying to understand you know this this it comes to the accident or the cause or this here but if you think it out and you talk it out and then you read it with meaning, it changes everything. It makes, oh, why? That, that, yes, this actually makes sense. I'm starting to understand what he's saying. So um, that's a very current, actual, real thing that I did last Tuesday, and I'll do again next Tuesday. Um, so, so this group of people and hammer our way through uh, De Veritate. Likewise, uh, in uh, we're doing Sanskrit, you know, so Sanskrit obviously is a great language for, for doing this. And uh, there are any number of uh, Sanskrit texts where, I mean, I think they're kind of all designed for, I think there's an acknowledgement of the fact that it's such a hard language to learn. It's kind of hard to find. I've got a copy of the Upanishads. It's only in Sanskrit, but most things are like with translations and with vocabulary help and stuff. So you can go along and you can look at that and that helps you see it, but it also helps you not become so immersed, but um, I found this wonderful audiobook version of the, uh, the the Bhagavad Gita completely recited in Sanskrit and then and then sort of analyzed in English that's so it's a spoken thing. So listening to uh, this guy do that is is uh, quite quite engaging. but in terms of sitting and, and reading by yourself, it doesn't have to be a uh, you know one of these major etymological source of languages. I think it, it's the spiritual experience, literally, because it's so rewarding to, to read. Even it doesn't even have to be, a, you know, Thomas Aquinas' the Bhagavad Gita can just be a well-written novel or a poem. Um, when you can come to a point, and it's like you go through the various stages of of aspiring to read in the language, and you're just beginning, and you work through the textbooks, and you do this, and you use bilingual texts, and you use dictionaries, and trends, and one day you just find yourself and you say, "Hey, I'm I'm I'm, I'm doing it." I'm, I'm reading. I'm just, I'm just doing it. And when you finally can do that, um, whatever, it doesn't have to be, again, it doesn't have to be a, a great text like the ones I just described. It can just be, you know, a, a novel, but that is, uh, that is a very illuminating experience when you're just like, oh, I've arrived. Fascinating. I'd like to ask you about this idea of the mother language. And to quote you, you've said, the blank slate of the child's mind becomes occupied by the mother language which seems to want to repel outsiders. You're going to say you can actually get your mother language's blessings and assistance, but in order to do that, you need to get to know her intimately and thoroughly first on that conscious level. A conscious understanding of your mother language is a crucial precondition to become a student of systematically learning foreign languages. I wonder if you might explain this idea of this sort of territorial behavior of the native language, um, resistance almost to to foreign language. I wonder if you might describe that and how is it that we can get the mother language's blessings and assistance? Well, I, I think it's 
hope it's obvious that you know uh, when you know it's, it's this is an analogy you know it's not really mom and they're doing this it's an analogy but um again uh i'm american you're british i think we're probably speaking to mostly people who are listening probably are are you know monolingual background themselves and so um it particularly for monolinguals, but I think then you would have like maybe as you know, like some people whose parents are divorced and have two, like you have two moms or two babies if you're bilingual, some, but these languages that we've been programmed with, particularly if it's a monolingual language, particularly if you see only one, it it doesn't understand, you know, the you know, that there's other um ways of of saying things or or doing things. And you have to sort of force that in there. And it's not necessarily pleasant and it's kind of challenging and it's kind of, you know, and that's why people find it um to be a, a frustrating experience. So uh you would say that, you know, I just again think of it in, in terms of practical utilitarian sense. Um if if you are a monolingual English speaker, then you do everything just fine in English. Just fine. And then for some reason you're proposing to yourself or it's proposed to you that you should learn how to do it in some other language. And it's some, however consciously or whatever you're thinking, okay, sure, that might be interesting. That might be kind of fun. On some other level, if you haven't done it before uh, and it's going to be somewhat strenuous and, 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 and difficult and tedious, uh, you're, you're going to rebel against that. You're going to say, one level, why should I do this? I, I know that I'm never going to do it as well. I can do it in English. Why should I force myself to do this? So the mother language will sort of like push this thing away and say, you know, just don't, don't, don't do this. You know, you're, you're, you're fine where you are. You know, it's, it's um, this experience, I think, that probably most people who, you know, they're trying to learn their first foreign language will have experienced that, that, you know, you just sort of uh, want to reject the process of a certain procedure. And I do think that that is, in a certain sense, again, thinking very analogically, the mother um, being sort of protective of, of her territory and, you know, and, and wanting not other things not to encroach on it. Um, but if you can approach languages like I do from a comparative philological perspective and see that, you know, that's not you really try to just say the more the merrier, but the again the the concept that the the more you know, the more you understand, the more you can perceive, the more you can see the connections and analogies and relationships between things. Um, so introducing that kind of um, idea, I think, is is what you need to get your your mother mind to um, to to do to accept. So uh, that might just be a very uh, freely way of saying, well, you know, if, if I do think that, you know, if you want to um, learn other languages as well, it helps you. If you're going to study systematically, you need to know what sort of grammatical terms are, grammatical concepts and terms are. And the easiest way to do that is to become aware of them, to study those in your native language, which most people don't find particularly interesting or fun or, or pleasant or necessary because we do it automatically. But if you're aware of grammatical concepts, then when you uh, encounter others that are different from yours, you notice that and you think, wow, that's kind of neat. That's kind of interesting. Okay. So that, that helps you pull things up. Likewise, um, I think that you could, um, as I said, there's a, a commonality of, um, of vocabulary among other languages that come from the same etymological rivers, etymological source streams. And to the extent that you have a rich vocabulary, developed vocabulary, you're going to see more and more of that. Um, so if you, you know, if you, if you, most of our polysyllabic words in English are of Latin origin. And so if you are not 
you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you, if you speak a much more pure Germanic version of it, if you only stay on, you know, on, on you know, with, with the native Germanic words, you're, you will, well, you recognize more in Swedish or German, but um, if you expand your vocabulary by getting a good education, reading a lot, enjoying stuff that's been written in your native language, um, then when you go and you'll turn to look at, at Latin or or, or French or Spanish, you'll say, wait a minute, if I look at the page, if I don't panic and I look at the page, I see lots and lots of words that I know. So I recognize these things. So uh, that will that will help. Uh, and then, as I said, it's all about reading for me. When you come right down to it, it's all about reading, reading good books, reading literature. Um, I think there too, that, you know, if you have a, a concept of, you know, somebody who wrote well, you know, in, in, in different languages, you're, you're going to want to see that. So if you, you know, if you want to go and say, well, I, I, I kind of enjoy, you know, this, this kind of author and this kind of author is, you know, I know he was influenced by this author who wrote in this other language. And so I could read these books in my language and then I could read these books in that language and um, they would sort of complement each other. So again, uh, sort of helping that analogical metaphorical mother who's protective and wants, you know, thinks that, you know, oh, these other kids out there, they could be bad, they could be dangerous, I want to keep you here protected, you're fine, you're working just well with your thing, if you can help her see, you know, these, they're not dangerous, they are, you know, they have a lot of perspective to bring and they're, you know, they can, they'll help you grow richer yourself rather than any way sort of detracting from you, there's no need to be jealous and try to keep me to yourself precisely because I'm bringing in these other languages and spending time with them, I'm enriching you, so. I've also heard you describe this uh, resistance or hostility perhaps even in terms of energy efficiency and that by expanding one's idea of reward, the cost benefit uh, ratio starts to look a little bit different. For me personally, that concept, hearing that from you, has illuminated a kind of reflexive resistance which is a big impediment to focus mm -hmm. and recognizing that resistance or have, having it pointed out and then immediately you get a taste for it if you can if you can catch it and i think that's where perhaps meditation does help mm -hmm. um, you can catch it then straight away it's like aha that's a strand of something that was going on that was a veil that was happening that's um you know like panic uh, you've described panic at looking at foreign language. There can also be a resistance, a layer of resistance, mm -hmm. or simply bouncing off of it, or or a wave of almost lethargy that can that can come. Resistance uh, shows up in many different forms, and recognizing ah, that's what that is. That's what that is. That that's for me been very helpful. Having it illuminated immediately subjects it to, if you like, the momentum of meditation training to unlock level of sort of focus and ability to stick with it or be with it. Uh, I find that to be very helpful indeed. So thank you for that. Um, the, um, I wonder if we might talk a bit about some of the techniques. Now you've, you've talked about this idea of using some sort of breath technique and then switching the, the brain over into another language. I wonder if you might give a step-by-step -step for the record of that technique. Then there's two or three other techniques I'd like to to ask you about as well. Okay, so step by step for that is it, it has to follow upon um, a a shadowing session. A shadowing is 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 a technique where you listen to audio and repeat simultaneously with what you're hearing. So um, you are training yourself to 
speak sort of the, the, the technique of doing it that can be difficult in itself when you start doing it you know you most people are inclined to want to wait till they hear a word before they say it but you actually have to hear it and sort of start saying it as the word is being said so that's a technique that you have to train up to work up to being able to do that but um, in order to do this what you would have to do is be shadowing for a while be shadowing uh, ideally stuff that there's a tech the technique of shadowing you can start out with what I call blind shadowing when you don't understand what you're saying and you do it just for the um the phonetics and the trying to recognize something that you do it so if you're learning a totally different language it doesn't make sense to do a lot of blind shadowing but if you're learning a language that's related and does have some words and you have a chance of saying well wait I do understand something so understanding what you can understand before you have it uh, explained to you is, is a good thing to do um, but um, you can be possibly blind shadowing possibly looking at text and shadowing at the same time so you understand so you have some <clears throat> ideas you have some sentences you have some dialogue you have some words that are running through your head and they're not just running through your head because you're hearing them they're running through your head because you're saying them and I do think that that's what makes shadowing work is that you get the resonance of the input coming through your ears and the output coming through your mouth and it's sort of there's a resonance you can feel it uh it, when you're when you're speaking along with the language <clears throat> so you would do shadowing for a while you know a couple five ten fifteen minutes more you'd be shadowing uh, and then the you would come to this from stopping the shadowing so shadowing you're going to be listening to some sort of a device little mp3 player is what i use so at a certain point you would say okay now i'm going to be i'm going to stop i'm going to go and i'm going to do something else so normally what you would do is in the normal course of your life you would say okay well I turn this off and now I'm not shouting anymore if I'm still studying I'm going to pick up my book and look at this or if I'm done studying I'm going to turn my mind to what I'm going to do next or if I'm don't have a particular plan then the monkey mind's going to come in and jump around or I'm going to get distracted some other way so um, the step would be to shadow and then when you turn off the little mp3 player or whatever else you're using you just say I want to make an intention to not do any of those things I'm not going to turn my mind to some other task I'm not going to let the monkey mind start jumping around I'm not going to even revert to thinking uh, in my native language or another language I'm doing because I've just been practicing and drilling and getting this resonance and having these sentences going here so uh I could do the I know that I'm gonna you don't do this spontaneously you're planning to do this ahead of time um but you say okay when I stop doing this then I am going to just and it does help to hold your breath that so I've always found holding your breath you know stops your you know, slows things down okay so it does I'm going to just do this and I'm going to allow the sounds that I was just hearing and making the things that I was just speaking I want to keep hearing those and to the degree that I can I want to like understand those and I want to repeat those so if I've been saying a dialogue I'd like to participate in the dialogue so mentally rehearsing and exercising what you just did um but uh yeah I would say you would shadow stop with the intention hold your breath and just try to keep your mind focused on hearing and replaying and saying what you just did and then expanding upon that at the very beginning when you're starting to learn language you can't but the, when you develop vocabulary and grammar and stuff like that you'll be able to do more and more try to think in the language and again just have told yourself beforehand that you are not going to translate you're not going to um panic 
that when you are starting to think uh, and there's a concept that you don't know, that you don't need to panic, you don't need to fill it in in English, you just leave it blank. You just go over it. So you can you train yourself to think, I'm thinking this, I don't know this word, so I'm just going to leave it blank. And that helps you too on the spiritual level, I think, because you can, it doesn't have to be an abstract concept. It's something that you can see it. That really helps you uncouple words and things. You can have a concept without having a word. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, that Merlin, my cat, he thinks, he doesn't have a language like we use, like I know, but it's clear that he's thinking, you know, so it's possible to think without language. But how do you do that? We're trained to think in language. So this is a way of getting yourself to think without language, just saying, I'm not going to translate. I'm just going to have this here. So, um, yeah, that would be pretty much it. Shadows, so you have the resonance going. Have planned beforehand and then re-articulate to yourself the, the intention. I'm not going to translate. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to revert to other languages. I'm just going to hold my breath and keep thinking in this language resonating and just have that go longer and longer and longer. And when you get better and better and better. And this is a technique, shadowing in particular, that you're known, known for, if not inventing, elaborating it to a much more precise and nuanced degree with many steps and layers. This is in, in, in some ways, one of the techniques I think you're most known for contributing to, um, to the field. You know, I know you're very interested in linguists and um, philologists of centuries gone by. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard you talk formally of them. Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps even in one of the episodes you, you mentioned the difference between what would be expected as a sort of basis of scholarship, say, in the 19th century or, or so, compared to what many scholars today are able to achieve, for example, facility in several languages. Uh, including Latin, Greek, and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would be seen as sort of a basic. To what degree have you been inspired by those previous generations of polyglots? Which techniques or attitudes have informed or inspired you in your own creation of techniques and developing of, of different techniques, such as, for example, shadowing? Yes, this 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 um, very, 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 very common uh, presumption in our society in our time that you know we're we you know we're the best. We're getting better. You know, the things that we have today, you know, are the, you know, the, there's progress everywhere. And, you know, the, you know, compared to, you know, all the apps that we've got now, when I think of, you know, how people could possibly have learned all these things with, you know, just book and paper. Oh my God, it makes my head spin. That's what, you know, the, the digital generation uh, thinks. And yet you look at that and you say, well, wait a minute, how, let's, let's see, can, let's see some proof is in the pudding. What did, you know, what did Max Müller, what did he do? He edited the whole great books of the sacred books of the East. He translated Sanskrit. He did all these things. I mean, it's, it's an incredible scholarship. Um, and find somebody who does anything like that today. It's, you can't. Um, uh, and there's something that was uh, just, yeah, there were people who were able to do <laughs> more uh, then. And that's just, you know, when you read their, uh, it's just starting with the hardest book you can. You want to learn Spanish? Get Don Quixote and just start reading it, you know, and, and uh, sort of do that. Uh, Heinrich Schliemann is a, is a famous or perhaps infamous example of somebody who, you know, recreated ancient Greek, you know, by, you know, making people live it and, and, and talk it around him in his house and do stuff like that. So um, there are, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, this, this is stuff that mostly I learned kind of Afterwards, doing research after, I wouldn't say it's like, oh, that I learned about him and that inspired me, but it certainly reinforced me and made me feel less 
of a loner, less of a weirdo, less of somebody doing something on my own. So, um, yeah, foreshadowing though, I certainly I could I could never claim to to be the discoverer, or the inventor, or anything like that. It's a perfectly natural, normal technique that I think any two year old or three year old is inclined to do. You listen and you repeat exactly what somebody's saying, and yet um, that's seen as rude, and so people, you know. Again, the, the real mother will probably say, don't do that. That's not nice. Don't don't imitate people. And so that's sort of hammered out of people. But I think it's very natural and normal for um, kids to do that. Uh, and that's in essence what it is. You, you listen and try to repeat at the same time. Um, but what is different, <clears throat> again, yeah, I have uh, gone and sort of made different steps and tied it together with using various kinds of methods and manuals and, you know, describe steps for doing that. Um, but I do think beyond that, um, shadowing is something that can probably only have been done in the, again, again, you could mirror shadow somebody, anybody who's talking to you, but um, unless you have that person's total permission, that, that's, that's kind of weird. That's, you know, can you, you to keep doing that when the person is talking to you and you would be, you know, saying exactly what it's much easier to do that with a recording or some sort of broadcast. So it's only since you could possibly have listened to a, a record player or a radio broadcast that you could probably do this uh, comfortably with, you know, with without somebody knowing that. Um, and more specifically, to to get it to really work with the resonance, I found it's got to come to the point when you want to have sort of um, earphones. And I don't know when those were invented, but I know that also to me a big part of of shadowing is you do it while you're walking around, or you're walking in nature. So that you do need to wait for the invention of the like the the Walkman, the cassette, the cassette recorder, you know, that's kind of mid-70s. You know, you couldn't have really done that before that. So there's certainly a way that technology has enabled this technique to uh, be better attuned towards um towards didactic and other recordings that you can use for learning languages. And I've, I've maximized that in my own learning and I'm now trying to share that with other people. So that's what I would say with, you know, there with, with shadowing. Um, I have two or three other techniques I'd like to ask you about, but on yeah. this, on the subject of your interest in 19th century polyglots, for example, what do you think are the key causal factors of that degradation between then and now in terms in terms in terms of what you just described is it a uh, an attrition of attention because of digital devices and this sort of thing one hears that from time to time is it uh, a lowering of iq is it um you know <laughs> whatever the case may be what or a lowering of standards and if so why or a change in educational emphasis in some way what do you think is the reason but what are the key causal factors behind this this degradation as you've put it uh, from then to now well, on that note, there's this wonderful anecdote I can give of a couple of years back. Um, they, who were they? I don't know. Somehow it was, it, it was discovered. Somebody, you know, had, had somebody dusted something off and looked at this and said, what is this? And they said, oh, this is a test that you had to take to graduate from middle school or intermediate school and get into high school. So this is a test for 13 or 14 year olds to show that they have enough knowledge to go into high school. And this is a test, I think, from about 1911 or so um, from some state in the United States, just, you know, not just some, it's a statewide test. So everybody in the state of, I don't know if it was Indiana or Illinois or some state, you know, would have to take this test to get into high school. And obviously lots of people got into high school and did this. 
well, they took this test now uh, and they gave it to freshmen and, and sophomores. They gave it to college students at like some of the best colleges uh, and people couldn't do it. I mean, just the knowledge that people had the ability to, you know, it had all sorts of sections. It was the kind of test that we get or, or given here. I don't know how familiar your European uh, listeners are with things like uh, we have um, aptitude tests. There's the scholastic aptitude test and the preliminary scholastic aptitude test. And there is no doubt that these have definitely been dumbed down over the years and, and made easier as to accommodate people needing to get the, the better top scores. So yes, I do think people are getting stupider. I do, I do think that something is something in the air, something in the atmosphere, something is going on. I just think that um, people are not, um, our brains are probably just not what, what they were in the past. So like we're going to start reading Greek uh, mythology and the like, you know, where you had the, you had the golden age and the silver age and the bronze age. And now like we're the, we're, we're the clay people and the people back then, those were at least the, the wooden people or the silver people. I don't, I don't have an explanation for it. I just can, can observe it and, and confirm that that's what it really, really seems like to me. And maybe it's just because I'm getting old, I'm getting older. I can be like an old man myself and think, you know, yeah, back before there were computers, I could focus better. I could. I mean, I can't bite. Look, we're communicating with the computer right now. The academy running on the computers. I get it. I spend, get all my information and everything from the computer. I could never. Yes, it would be very hard to imagine not having it. But no, wait a minute. I didn't used to have it. And when I didn't have it, I could focus better. And, you know, and it was, it was fine. Uh, and so this presumption that everything that we have around us now is necessary and, and helps us and, you know, and makes us do our things. I just think a lot of things are, are convenience training that, um, that dull us, you know, uh, so many people um, use uh, a GPS all the time. And when you're in a foreign city, just passing through once, yes, that makes perfect sense. But in your own neighborhood, so that you never learn the streets, you never learn the, the you know, how, how to get around where you are. Um, I think that that, you know, doesn't help. Well, Googling is a great way to get comes, but I think that getting that information so quickly is easy in, easy out. And then your minds are trained to do that. So, Yes, I am pretty pessimistic about the, the effects of, of digital stuff on us now, but this would just be the icing on the cake. This would just be the sort of final step. I, I do think that that overall dumbing down process has been going on for, for some time. It's not just, you know, just, just since just, you know, the, the, the recent wave of digital things. I think it's been accelerating since I don't know when, it seems marked to me in the 20th century. Um, it seems like if you look at, you look just in terms as a scholar, looking at scholarship, I can see the 19th century and even some of the early 20th century, maybe, but yeah, 19th century, um, the, the, from the Middle Ages, you know, just people who wrote, you know, one man could write an encyclopedia, you know, and obviously it's just limited what's in it, but just to have an encyclopedic mind and be able to conceptualize, you know, just sort of doing this. I mean, uh, the idea of the Renaissance man, you know, being conversant in all different kinds of things. Um, yeah, to me, sort of goes up there and then just the the, the residue that we have, the proof, the, 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 the publications of 19th century scholarship seem to me to be the, the acme of the, the, the scholarly mind. And since then, it seems to be downhill and accelerating downhill. Do you have a sense of what has, what, what is contributing to this deceleration? 
You said in the air. That implies perhaps some what, nutritional or atmospheric changes. Um, what's causing this deceleration or at least contributing to it? Do you have a sense of that? Hmm. I really am not sure, but I do think that, you know, um, there are many ways that we live that we get used to and they seem perfectly natural and normal to us, but uh, in point of fact, they weren't, you know, just a very, very short time ago. And in terms of adaptation to, you know, what we, how we're supposed to, you know, be, be living or eating or, you know, just suspending our days, you know, um, I think that there's just a huge mismatch. And I think one thing that you can certainly say is that um, what, what has been concomitant with just across the board, this thing, apart from inventions and technology and pollution out there, you know, affecting things, it's just overall population growth and up more than and and concentration in urban centers i think that's definitely you know an empirical factor that you can look at since starting the you know the end of the 18th century that's you know that's that starts people leave the country and go to live in big cities and people uh, just have this population explosion and so i think that you know people have done studies with things like animals like rats and rats are actually very intelligent uh, communal creatures and you can take rats and you can put them in a room together uh, and there does come a tipping point so it's like you can put i don't know what the exact number is but you can put up to 99 rats in a room of a certain size and they'll they'll be fine they'll form a society they'll function normally but if you put one more in that like it's too much and then they kind of go weird they kind of go crazy they start you know, killing each other and 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 developing neuroses and things like that, and um, maybe that's just it. You know, there's just too many of us, too many of us concentrated in in one area, uh, and that's um, somehow affecting with without us knowing it because it's all we've ever known. It's affecting the way we we do everything, um, affecting the way we perceive things. I think it does in a purely educational level. Yeah, I mean, there have been changes that have been made to accommodate that. So um, you have to have many more schools and the schools have to be you know, sort of like leveled down and you have to, you know, get every, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it's it's going to have an effect on the, the educational system, certainly. Mm. But, you know, you're just, this is not something I've given a great deal of thought. Now you're just pushing me in and making me think out loud. But I do think that that, that is the case, that there are, um, yeah, that, that uh, there are ways that we live that seem normal and natural to us just because that's all we've ever known or done. But if you just take a little look back, anthropologically speaking, is this really natural? Is this really the way we're supposed to be living? Uh, I'm not so sure. If you want to study with the sort of rigor that you've done and that you encourage and that you guide others to do, in fact, one quickly has to come face-to-face. -face. We've talked about resistance. We've talked about that. One has to come quickly face-to-face -face with, well, focus. You're going to have to upgrade that, or it's going to come into, your focus will come into focus. And so will a lot of other things, habits of life, sleep schedule, etc. We talked in the first episode about some of your routines and the, the, the lifestyles you used to live, pseudo-monastic lifestyle at times, rising very early in the morning, etc. Exercise every day, these sorts of factors. I still do, I still do both of those. 
Right. So I'm wondering if you might talk a bit about that, the implications of, in terms of lifestyle, of the path that you followed. And how have you seen that play out among some of your students or those, or those who, 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 um, who you've advised and continue to advise? Yeah. Again, it's, it's you know, lifestyle habits, dietary habits, things like this. I mean, these are so contentious. You can find one expert who will say one thing, another expert will say the exact opposite. And I think when you get right down to it, there are people, you know, there probably isn't one, one, one perfectly adequate style of life or style of eating or anything for, for everybody. It suits everybody. Um, but yes, I have given, you know, sort of when people, the, the kind of people that are attracted to wanting to be my students in the academy or something like that are naturally attracted to that. And when I can explain things and, 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 you know, and, and sort of give advice on, on yes, developing discipline, developing something like this, uh, you know, I've, I've you know, only been, received expressions of gratitude for that and said that, you know that really made a big change once it was started to do that. it's hard to do that yes it's hard to get up early it's hard to you know to to um, give yourself physical discipline and mental discipline but I've, I've, i do stand by that that the the way that i study is not just you know not it's it's language learning but it's not just okay here here i've got my you know it's my I just happen to have my perfection it's not just learning russian you know it's expanding my mind into uh into into that and getting the discipline to do that and uh and and getting access to you know to philosophy and, and thought that's been expressed in the medium of of this language and so um yeah i would definitely say that um yes it it requires you to develop discipline it requires you to develop focus it requires you to do all these kinds of, and therefore it's a useful tool for that i would i've talked about in some other context the idea of of language learning the way i do it as being a form of mental or spiritual exercise and just the way that you would get a workout at the for your body by going to the gym i think that studying kind of the way that i do and try to tell other people that they could do it too uh is a is is that kind of workout and so it keeps you fit and so um yeah i, I do think that um if i may i do see that some some people that i i knew uh friends of mine from younger days they just they seem to be getting duller themselves they don't seem like they've had any sort of um particularly uh challenging engaging occupation i don't think that language is the only thing that you could do with that i think there's many many interesting fascinating things to study and devote yourself in the world but um, when you meet people who haven't done that and are getting up in years they seem dull compared to what they were sometimes if we knew them when they were younger so um, that may be part of it too or our overall lifestyle is just too easy you know we're not challenged to uh, to go beyond or do anything more, and that might just have a uh, the same way you can see if somebody is getting um, flabby, you know, out of shape, overweight. Um, it's harder to see that that's going on in the mind, but I I think there's a very strong mind-body connection, and I think that that must be going on in the mind, and probably the mind can be flabby and out of shape, even if the body isn't. But definitely, if the body is, the mind will be. Um, and so, yeah, there's that. There's a great way of of thinking of that analogy too. That's another thing. Look, it's not just the 19th century; it goes way into the 20th century, just in a few decades. Ago. If you look at pictures of 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 you know uh, even films that have of people you know in in 
50, 60, 70 years ago, you don't have people who are out of shape. That's 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 a modern phenomenon. People are out of shape now. We're, our society is out of shape. In general, people are out of shape. And if you can see that they're physically out of shape. They're probably you know, mentally out of shape too. The ability to focus, the ability to concentrate, the ability to dedicate yourself to the kind of task that's got to be impeded by our overall state of health. I have two sort of ideas sizzling at the same time that are sort of related. And the, the first is the idea of the monastic rule. Uh, the rules, the monastic uh, schedules and so on, which, depending on the order, of course, often involves some sort of combination of, of, of devotional activity, of course, but also intellectual activity and physical activity uh, as well. To some degree, if not exercise, then some sort of maintenance, uh, gardening, whatever the case may be. I'm curious on your thoughts on that. And the other um, idea perhaps I'll, I'll postpone my second idea there we are we sorted that now perhaps i'll postpone my second idea for after your response to that mm -hmm. well i mean yeah it's actually you know the, the 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 rule of benedict is the i think the most famous rule and that just prescribes you know you will get up you know and say the liturgy of the hours so you're going to get up at two in the morning and devote yourself immediately to prayers and you're going to do this and then orare est laborare to work is to pray and so you're going to sit in a scriptorium and copy books all day or you're going to go out and you're going to uh, work in the garden, but you're going to interrupt this repeatedly with coming back to, to pray. So you've got an incredible amount of structure, uh, an incredible amount of intellectual activity if you're working in the scriptorium, an incredible amount of uh, physical activity if you're working out uh, gardening in, in, in medieval circumstances. I mean, that's that's hard physical work. Um, so uh, and you've got structure throughout the day and you're you're keeping silence, uh, not speaking and, you know, in frivolous terms. So um, you're made to stay focused. So yeah, isn't that's why I was so attracted to that. I and mean, it's something terribly, terribly attractive about that whole that whole rule, that image, that way of living your life that appeals to me. You know, my experience of meditation retreats um, has been one of the key points of it, I think, has been the way in which the schedule works on you. And that actually simply attempting and failing in, in most cases, in my case, certainly, to actually keep to a schedule in a, in a meditation retreat, which is sort of pseudo-monastic um, kind of scenario that's set up, depending on the retreat, of course. Um, the de I've marked, in fact, call it progress or whatever you want to call it, in my own retreats over the years as to the degree to which I'm actually able to keep the schedule. It's st starting off not very well, gradually, if you want, growing into it, actually, and, and along the way encountering the forces in myself and the habits in myself, resistances and avoidances and so on. This is sort of basic meditational things. In fact, yes, on the cushion, but actually in relationship to the schedule uh, as well. And I think the idea of applying one's meditation practice to activities in life, whether it's stamping community wafers or uh, raking a Zen garden or copying a scriptorium is uh, in the scriptorium is, um, in a sense, an obvious point. But I think the way in which you approach these themes, language learning, uh, great books, philology, comparative linguistics, has a sort of spirit about it that makes it, I think, very conducive to meditators who might be interested in those topics mm -hmm. to really to truly take it as an extension of or an application of perhaps the meditative practice. And I think that's something very interesting, very mm -hmm. unique, and something that I've appreciated greatly um, in my in my contact with you. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, if, if I could yeah, help. Yes. I'd be, I, I've learned from, you know, that's one of the, you know, being a, 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 a professor, uh, you always learn from your students a certain way, but I certainly learned more from the 
um, not calling you old, but the older, more mature, more experienced type of student that I have here in the academy than I had as typical college students. So um, I've also, you know, sort of the, the experience of um, most of the time guiding you, but sometimes being guided by you is is uh, is, is very rich and rewarding there too. So um, it is fascinating the number of the, the types of different people that we have. I mean, there's there's you, there's there's the there's the symphony conductor, there's the the there are medical doctors, there are, you know, we have an acupuncturist, we've got, you know, just some some that you might expect, graduate students in in, in medieval literature. I mean, that that's that's what you would expect, but there's so much beyond that. Uh, and it's just sort of a, a happy medium. And I'm really interested by the number of people who we have who are actually not of any kind of humanities background who are sort of you know scientific or humanities type people and yet they want to expand their consciousness more by you know getting more languages and reading more books and things like that so i think that's that's uh, quite neat so i'm really happy with the, the way things are going yes indeed and i think we've once again come to the the end of uh the lifespan of this of this episode it's been a great triptych thank you very much yeah. perhaps one yeah. day in the future we'll We'll talk more. There's much more to be talked about. But really, I think for, the, for more, people should come to the Academy. So maybe you can talk, uh, say something about how can people find this Academy? How can people uh, join it? Well, um, yeah, if, if, if people like who watch your videos, who are meditators, who are seeing podcasts, they've been intrigued by all of this. Uh, like I said, it's been great having you. I think it'd be wonderful to have more people who are um, I think we can call them seekers, questers, you know, who, you know, who want to expand their minds in various ways. Uh, if they're intrigued by the kind of things we've been talking about, it'd be great to have them come and try to join. You've got my name written on the thing. So the website is alexanderarguez.com and, um, and, and you go there and there's, there's pages, uh, on, for the academy and you can look at the schedule and you can look at the times we have various things and you look at uh, uh, what might interest you and if something appeals to you there's uh, there's a link on there to an application form and you fill that out and I've got an assistant who will get back to you and talk about the times and the accommodations and whatnot and how you would end up signing up for it and uh, then you could possibly begin great books we're starting as you know we're going to be starting the uh, finishing the histories uh soon we're starting the greek plays uh in, in the middle of july so that's kind of like an entry point but most of the stuff we have is kind of ongoing so you know your people it's sort of like a book reading and discussion circle so you know you you've had more experience talking this but other people can come in kind of at any time and and participate and contribute what they have to contribute and, and get out of what we have to get out of it so um yeah it'd be great to have more people join us. We've got a number of uh, circles that are um, large, but a number that are small and could use a, an infusion of a few more people. So to have uh, more people join would be a great thing. Well, Professor Alexandra Arguez, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you in these three episodes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me once again. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.